We're going to be 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13 and ending in verse 13. One simple verse for us this entire morning, all right? We're going to probably get out early, all right? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Peter writes, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you immensely for your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you for the grace that you've extended to us. A grace that you've extended to us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and a grace that we're looking for in its full revelation when Jesus Christ returns. And as much as we look forward to a breaks for Thanksgiving and Christmas and as much anticipation as we have for those, Lord, we recognize that there's a day coming that we ought to have even more anticipation for. And that's the return of your glorious son, Jesus Christ, Lord. And so I pray that you'd allow us to live and to wait with fruitfulness and with incredible impact. I pray that as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would teach us, that you would sharpen in us an understanding of how to live for you, how to walk with you. I pray that you would do business with us this morning. And Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. All right, well, we are going to wrap up this morning our Culture Matter series and kind of a a wrap-up, if you will, uh, as we kind of been covered a lot of ground this semester with you guys, all right? And as we kind of do that, I'll I'll tell you guys, I was struck this week by a post that was a thread kind of running through Facebook. Some of you guys might have seen this, but it was uh, huge historical events as if they had occurred today and as if people in those days and time were, if they had put it up on Instagram, what it would be like, all right? So some of you guys might have seen this, all right? I was rolling all week, all right? So a couple of them for you guys. One of them, uh, this one, all right? So, the Trojan horse, all right? Also, you have Neil Armstrong as if he was posting a picture on Instagram as if he was on the moon, all right? I don't know if you guys can read it, but it says, one small step for hashtag mankind, all right? Buzz Aldrin comments below, the view is beautiful, hashtag no filter, all right? I loved that, all right? Uh, as if that wasn't enough for you guys, this is what I love too, all right? Uh, John Hancock as if he was signing the Declaration of Independence, all right? It says, just signed your independence, what up, all right? Hashtag independence, hashtag freedom, all right? And my favorite, though, of all of them, and there were a ton of them, was the Martin Luther King one, all right? As if he's just writing, and all he's got is, I have a dream. And then he writes down below, trying to finish up the speech for tomorrow, hashtag writer's block, all right? Hashtag in racism, hashtag equality, all right? I, I love this idea of these incredible, momentous moments in American history that really changed our culture and changed the world as if it was actually going to be in the day of Instagram, as if it occurred today. And really, as we've kind of been talking through our entire series this semester, on culture matters, one of the things we've been trying to say all semester is that our, our faith impacts every arena of our life. The question we've kind of been leading with each week in, week out is how does our faith intersect with our world? And what I want to do this morning is we've kind of looked through that topic is kind of tweak that question a little bit as we've talked about how our faith intersects with our world. I want to tweak it and ask the question this way. How does our faith change the world? If our faith intersects with culture in a bunch of different arenas, then how can our faith not just intersect with culture as if it's a bit of a rendezvous, but how can it actually change our culture? How can it change the world? That's where we're going to kind of wrap up our series this morning. So we're going to wrap up this series that we've been walking through all semester in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And in this one verse, I think it's going to get, Peter's going to give us three basic ideas of how we do that. Three basic ideas of how our faith not only intersects with our culture and our world, but actually changes our culture and it changes our world, all right? That's where Peter's going to take us this morning. And as we kind of jump in, I'll say the first thing that Peter's going to say for us, the first idea I think he's going to involve us with is this idea that our faith is to engage actively. Peter says at the beginning of verse 13, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. Uh, we've been talking all semester in the way that our faith impacts our culture and our world. And one of the things that we've been trying to say every week in, week out is that our faith is to take action in each, each of these different arenas. That our faith has an intersection with uh, the arts. It has an intersection with money. It has an intersection with a career and a workplace. It has intersection with medicine. It has intersection with technology and all the different arenas of our life that we navigate in. 
In many ways, our faith is not a Sunday morning thing. It's not a church thing. Our faith intersects every arena of our life. And for many, as they think about culture, for many, as they've written about culture, especially from the Christian perspective, what many do, the very mode that many approach this whole discussion is really one of awareness. Many people, as they write on culture, the idea is to understand culture, to decode culture, to, in a sense, analyze culture. In many cases, we get worldview academies, we get philosophers, we get critics, we get all these kinds of things. But one of the things I want to say as we kind of wrap up the series this morning is that we're not looking for just awareness. Our goal this semester is we will look through culture as we try to analyze it, as we try to flay it open. Our hope for you guys is not just that you would walk out of this semester understanding the culture that you live in better. Awareness is insufficient to change the world. Awareness only goes so far. Uh, I ran across this week a, a cartoon by a guy named Sidney Harris, and he's got two scientists on a chalkboard with equations on the left, equations on the right. And there's a second step in the middle, in the middle as he kind of has this process unfolding that says, and then a miracle occurs, all right? I think for many of us, as we look at our faith intersecting the world, we have this idea of certain things that we know, certain things that we're hoping for, but we just hope with awareness, a miracle will happen, and then this, the world has changed, right? I think for many of us, uh, I think we could say to the church, like this one scientist says to another, I think you should be more explicit here in step two, all right? A miracle occurs, right? For many of us, we have awareness, but we're confused by why awareness doesn't move to transformation, we have worldview academies and we have all kinds of writings. We have all kinds of critics condemning, copying, criticizing, uh, analyzing our culture. But yet very few really, I think, have impacted our culture in a way that really changes it. Why? Why is that? I think for many, as we have worldviews, as we have an anal- analysis of culture, it really is a disembodied ex- experience, right? When you analyze something, it's merely intellectual. It doesn't actually live itself out. It doesn't translate and I think we've really missed the point of why that's supposed to happen or what's supposed to be happening. I think for many of us, I think we need to realize that awareness isn't enough. Analysis doesn't lead to transformation. It doesn't lead to transformation at all. Andy Crouch, in a book that I uh, quoted from a lot as our semester began, said this about cultural change. He said that culture changes, cultural change will only happen when something new displaces to some extent existing culture in a very tangible way. For many of us, we look at the culture that we're a part of and we analyze it, we criticize it, we condemn it. Sometimes we consume it, and yet we're wondering why the church and why our faith has had such a little impact on our culture. See, awareness isn't enough. That really to change culture, to really have an impact on culture, you need the creation of something new that displaces and replaces something old. See, when we stand back and we just criticize, we just analyze what exists, but we're unwilling to create something new, it doesn't move the needle at all in terms of changing and impacting culture. One of the things that we've been trying to say, and hopefully we've been hitting it week in, week out with you guys, is that in order to change the world, in order to change culture, you have to create something new. Or, and often that something new is something incredibly tangible. It's not just a new idea, but it's something tangible. So we've looked at technology, we looked at the arts, we looked at different things along the way, that there was a creation of something that forever changed the very fabric of our lives and the way that we even interact with one another. Facebook, for example, was the creation of something new that has totally changed the way that we interact with one another, the way that we even perceive relationships. Even our moms and dads are now on it, which is why you guys have gotten off of it, all right? Um, but every single one of us really has this idea that engaging culture is something that's good. And many of us realize and would recognize that it is good for us to engage our culture. It's good for us to uh, be active in our world sphere. I'll tell you guys, your generation is one of the most volunteeristic, one of the most engaging of any generation ever into our world scene. I mean, if we were to look at the A&M campus alone, how many organizations exist just at A&M to end sex trafficking? 
how many organizations exist just to bring clean water to different parts of the nations, right? Do we need more clean water organizations, right? You guys as a generation are incredibly voluntaristic, incredibly responsive to the needs that you see. You're not just aware, but you step in and you engage it. For you guys as a generation, I think it's amazing because you not only have awareness, but you have engagement. You guys have engaged and are living your faith out actively, and that's amazing. I think what you guys most need to hear, though, is not the first thing that Peter will say. It's going to be the second thing. Because Peter's going to say not just that we engage actively, but that we maintain sobriety. Right? Notice what he says. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. What's Peter saying here? Is he talking about Jack Daniels and the need to put it down? No. All right. What's he saying? Maintain sobriety. I think he's referring to an attitude that we're to have as we engage our world and our culture actively. That to engage it with an attitude of sobriety will be incredibly helpful as we volunteer and as we step in to engage the culture at large. Why is it necessary to have an attitude of sobriety? I think uh, Paul will say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, I think it gives us a clue as to why sobriety is needed. He says this, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived, you, however, continue in the things that you've learned. I think Paul is highlighting that in order, that in a sense, our world order, our culture at large is moving in one trajectory and one trajectory alone, which is a complete devolving downward into a toilet of despair. Right? Not to be pessimistic with you, but, but Paul, what Paul is saying is that evil men, and frankly our culture as well, will proceed from bad to worse. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And in the midst of that cult kind of culture, in the midst of that kind of world trajectory where it's moving, it's absolutely necessary that as you and I engage it, we have an attitude of sobriety realizing what's happening. Because I think there's two extremes that we can fall on. There's two errors that many of us can make as we look to engage our culture. One of them is this. And again, there are two different extremes. One of, us, one of them is this, that we will engage our culture with such hope, such expectation that we end up utterly uh, disillusioned by the fact that not much is changing. Okay? I think your generation is one that is incredibly volunteeristic, incredibly willing to engage as actively as possible, believing that anything is possible. And yet even as Paul will say that things will proceed from bad to worse, there's an element of sobriety that's needed so that we don't end up being incredibly disillusioned and just want to check out. On one side, we can engage with all kinds of activity, but without sobriety, and we end up disillusioned. On another end of the spectrum, we can have incredible sense of sobriety, incredibly realistic about how, world, or how worse the world will get, and we can disengage. See, we can disengage realizing how difficult it's going to be, or we can engage without a real sense of realism of how difficult it will be. On either end of the spectrum is an extreme that is improper and that is dangerous and is an error to be avoided. We don't want to engage without sobriety because we'll end up disillusioned. But we also don't want to be so aware and so sober as to the times that we then choose not to engage at all. Neither are appropriate, neither are helpful. Uh, this week uh, on Tuesday night, Marcy and I went off on a date. We ate at a restaurant where we got two desserts because we're dessert foodies, all right? Uh, love uh, dessert, all right? And we ended up taking off and ended up going over toward Kyle Field. Kind of wanted to see the deconstruction that was going on. Wanted to kind of see what some of you guys were saying about how crazy the whole place has gotten. And we parked. We couldn't get anywhere close to Kyle Field. And so we ended up kind of wandering over toward the Bright Building. I don't know if you guys have ever been in the Bright Building. We had never been in there, but heard some great things. And so we go in and 
It's clearly after hours. It's about 9.30 at night on Tuesday night, all right? Uh, never been over there. Don't know if it's really open to the public, but we thought, hey, let's just try it out, all right? So we opened the door, and there's like a wooden triangle that's been keeping the door open, so we just walk right on in, all right? And there's not a soul in there, all right? So we're just kind of meandering around, looking and checking out all the jerseys, the mannequins, and then, of course, the Heisman Trophy and all the, all the different awards of any famous a athlete over the last, you know, 100 years, all right? It was awesome, all right? Just Marcy and I checking the place out, kind of having this moment of like, are we supposed to be in here or should we, should we leave? What's going on? You know? And then I end up seeing kind of through another window, if you guys have ever been in there, there ends up being this long hallway in the back, all right? And I see some NFL helmets, all right? And I kind of want to check it out. And so we find another door that has a little num- numerical keypad, all right? Which probably means it should have been locked, all right? But it's unlocked, so we just walk right in, all right? Um, I'm like, I don't know, you know, let's just jump on in, all right? So we go on in, and like, I'm checking out all any AM athlete who's ever been in the NFL, all right? And so all their names are next to all the helmets. And as an NFL guy who kind of geeks out on the whole thing, I'm like, this is awesome. This is amazing, all right? And so we end up kind of moving down this hallway, and then, then there's this amazing spread of just snacks to the right, all right? And I was not really hungry, but I was thinking maybe, maybe not, you know? But there's a sign above the snack. It says, this area is under video surveillance. Do not grab anything, all right? And at that point, the rule follower in me just kicks in, all right? I'm like, oh, my gosh, right? Like, we're under video surveillance, all right? Like, we're going to be in so much trouble, all right? I'm kind of like that rule follower guy. My wife is not, all right? Marcy's like, don't worry about it, all right? So we're just kind of walking around, all right? So we kind of mosey, and we go past the snack area, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my gosh. This is like the football locker room, all right? And like, there's no one here, all right? So like, I kind of peek in, I'm looking around, like, oh my, oh my gosh, this is awesome, all right? And then we end up kind of walking down the other end of the hallway, all right, where all the coaches' offices, you can see the training room, it's just really, really cool, all right? But like, the rule follower in me at this point is getting really, really nervous, all right? And so, and sure enough, about this point in time, I can hear a door open on the outside that we had entered in for the bright area, all right? I'm like, someone's coming, all right? It's over, all right? It's over, okay? And like, there's a security guy coming who's probably like 10 years younger than me, but he's going to kick us out. He's going to have authority over me. It's going to be really embarrassing. I'm a pastor. What's going to happen? You know? So, um, and then like, so like the, the footsteps are coming closer and closer. So in the bright building, there's tile floor. So you can just hear someone just walking. All right. And so my heart's just starting to pound. All right. I'm like, Oh my gosh, like we're, we're just going to get arrested. I don't know what's going to happen. Like, it's going to be so embarrassing. All right. And the footsteps are getting closer and closer. Of course, Marcy's still not really stressed at all, but I'm like panicking. All right. And sure enough, we end up rounding a corner and the footsteps are like right on us. And as we round the corner, it's Kevin someone. All right. No lie. All right. No lie. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, it's someone, you know? And so all I can get out in that moment is, Hey, you know, like that's all I got. Hey. And then we, then we just walk past. All right. And then I'm like three, four steps past going, why didn't I get a picture? Right. No one's going to believe this. Why didn't I ask him about the rumors about him going to USC? Why didn't I ask him about the LSU game plan? He could use some help, obviously, you know? And so I'm like, didn't take advantage of the moment. All right. You know, and Marcy's of course going, why didn't, why, why did we just waste that whole moment? All right. So I was kind of pulling back, thinking about it and, and telling a good friend of mine who works there and, and like sends me a picture of us on security footage, right? Like in the hallway, I'm like, oh my gosh. All right. So, but I was thinking even about that moment that in many ways, if, you, if we had showed up in the Bright Building expecting to run into Kevin Sumlin, that would have been crazy, right? There's, there's no realistic expectation that we would have literally almost run into chest and chest, kind of a chest bump kind of thing, Kevin Sumlin, right? There's, that's just not realistic, right? Uh, and so there, there, you know, and even as we're in that moment, there, every part of me, because it just felt like it was compromising, wanted to get out, right? And if we had gotten out, there would have been no opportunity to really have the impact and have that moment that we could have had running into Sumlin, all right? But if I really would have thought that it was possible to run into someone, that would have been completely crazy, right? See, even for us, two extremes, right? If we were unwilling to be in a, in a potentially challenging situation, we would have missed an incredible opportunity. But if we would have actually thought we were going to run into someone, that would have been just crazy, right? 
And the same is true for us as a church as we interact with our world at large. If we're unwilling to be under some pressure and engage in a troubling culture, we'll miss an opportunity to have an impact. But if we really think we're going to change the world, it's actually pretty unrealistic, and we're going to end up incredibly disillusioned. Uh, We can have a belief that we're going to change the world, but I would argue to you guys that that idea actually is incredibly new. It's an incredibly new idea that you and I think that we can change the world, but we use that language all the time. Uh, I know an organization that we pattern ourselves off of in some ways that says, when the campus changed the world, right? It's an idea of, hey, impact the college students that you guys are one of the most impressionable, influential. You guys graduate, head off to four corners of the earth, and you will be the leaders of our culture. So win the campus and you will change the world. We use that kind of nomenclature all the time. But that idea, that belief that we can change the world actually is a very new, very novel idea. I'm going to give you guys some statistics about this idea to tell you guys how in need of some sobriety we are. All right. In 2007, if you did a Google result or search for change the world, it would have yielded 9 million results. All right. 2007, you search under Google change the world, you'll get 9 million results. All right. And, and the Harvard Library in 2004, someone did a study, and they went into the Harvard Library in 2004, and they went into the system that you could search titles, and they wrote in Change the World to see the kind of results they'd get from the Harvard Library, all right? In 2004, they found 216 books that had some reference to changing the world, all right? But here's what I want to tell you guys. Of the 216 books in the Harvard Library that had an idea of changing the world, I want to let you guys hear when they were written. Because the idea of changing the world is an incredibly new and novel concept, right? Let me prove it to you guys. Number of books written about changing the world from the Harvard Library, 2004 to 2000, there were 75 books that were written. In that four-year window, 75 of the 216 total books in the Harvard Library were written in that four-year window. In the 1990s, there was an additional 101 books that were written with that idea of changing the world. So from 2004 to 1990, 176 books of the 216 books on changing the world were written, meaning there were only 40 other books that were written about changing the world prior to 1990. This concept is incredibly new. To make the point a little bit further, in 1980, 18 books were written on changing the world. 1974, 1968, 1950s, four. 1950 to 1906. And before 1900 in the Harvard Library, zero books were written about changing the world. Zero out of an estimated 1.5 million books that the Harvard Library had at the time. 1900, Harvard Library has 1.5 million books. Zero were written about changing the world. 1950 and before, four books were written about changing the world. Which means this idea of changing the world is an incredibly new concept that is latent and written in to your DNA as a generation. Can you change the world? No. You cannot singularly change the world. Here's what I want to kind of highlight for you guys. One other quote about culture and the world. Culture, because it is world size, is simply too complex for anyone to control or predict. There's no way to imagine, foresee, or predict what a creation, a production, or an idea will have, the kind of impact it will have on a culture. Sometimes a piece of art will go hidden for two decades before it's unveiled and adopted and seen as popular and has an impact on a culture. It's so incredibly difficult to predict how certain factors and influences will change a culture and change a world because it's so complex of, a, of an idea and so complex of, a, of an infrastructure. I think there's this idea for you and I that we can be anything we want to be, we can do anything, and we can change the world in any way we want to change the world. And the reality is, it's not true. 
And yet that is the selling point that it causes you guys to engage with all that you have. All right. And so I want to kind of highlight for you guys. I, I think it's incredibly proper that we engage with all that we have. All right. But we can do that without a sense of realism and sobriety that will leave us crushed and disillusioned. And I want to save you from that. In many ways, the hope that we have, what we're hoping to see, the kind of change that we're hoping to have an influence in, if you were to redefine change in the world, I think you could redefine it this way. Our hope is that we could change culture at a particular time and a particular place. And really what we're hoping to do is not change the world, but change our world. That as your faith lives out in the culture that you're a part of, your hope and and a realistic hope is that you will have an impact within your sphere. It may be small, it may go large. Who has any idea of how large or how great that impact will be, we don't know. <laughs> but to think that you as a single individual will have the opportunity to change the entirety of the world and the entirety of the landscape of culture and ideas and concepts and companies is probably not accurate. And I say that not to depress you. I say that to add an element of sobriety towards your approach and your willingness to volunteer as you throw yourselves at the world and say, hey, I want to have an impact. That is an incredibly faith-filled desire. But I want to protect you from not being disillusioned. Because if some of us fall on two ends of the spectrum, some of us think we can change the world that we end up crushed and disillusioned in the next five years. Some of us think the world is so difficult and so hard that we don't engage it at all. We think, why does it matter? Both are uh, responses in extremes and neither are helpful. All right, which is why Peter says here, I think that you and I are to engage actively with an element and an attitude of sobriety. All right, and thirdly, and here's why I think that we're supposed to have some sobriety is because realizing and recognizing that ultimately the kind of change we're hoping for is not one that we will enact, but is one that Jesus Christ will enact. In many ways, he'll say in verse 13, keep sober in spirit and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That the hope that we have, that which we're looking forward in the future is not the kind of change and impact that we're going to have primarily, but it's the kind of change and impact that Jesus Christ will have when he returns. In many ways, you guys are absolutely stoked out of your mind for Thanksgiving. Amen, right? But Thanksgiving pales in comparison to the break that's coming known as Christmas break, right? Uh, when God wipes away all school from your, your whole existence, right? And provides you an utter eternity of heaven known as a three to four week break when you don't have to do anything, right? That's what you're looking for. Thanksgiving is just a brief taste. In many ways, what we do and the kind of change, the kind of impact we have in our culture and our world is Thanksgiving break. It's a brief taste. Never long enough, never adequate enough, a brief taste of what is fully coming in the future. And that's what Jesus Christ will do, which is why Peter will say, engage actively, maintain sobriety, and ultimately, lastly, remain hopeful. Remain hopeful of what God will do in the future, not what we will do. What we can do is limited, it's short-sighted, and it is but an arrow pointing toward what Jesus Christ will do when he will return, because it will be full and it will be infinite, and it will be the full realization of all that we're hoping for and all that we're longing for and all that our world is longing for. Well, what will that future be like? I want you guys to flip over to the very end of your Bible, Revelation. I'm going to give you guys just a couple of verses from Revelation chapter 21, because I want to highlight for you exactly what is coming in the future. What is it that we're to fix our hope on? What is it we're longing for? What is it we're excited for? What is it we're waiting with anticipation for? And then when we get to grasp that, we get to see that what we see now is but a brief shadow of what is coming. Revelation chapter 21, beginning of verse 1. I'm going to read you guys these first two verses of chapter 21. And I think it'll be really interesting for you to see what's coming in the future. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. 
And there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. What's coming down out of heaven? A new city. A brand new city. A new Jerusalem. As we look toward the future, what we're looking for is not just a garden restored from Genesis 1. What we're looking for is a fully developed, fully matured, holy city. All right. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, one of my favorite quotes, a guy named Paul Marshall, and he says this about the future that's coming. He says, our destiny is an earthly one, a new earth, an earth redeemed and transfigured, an earth reunited with heaven, but an earth nonetheless. I think for many of us, when we think of the future that's coming, we think of Jesus in the clouds and an eternal long church service. It really doesn't really excite many of us, right? Uh, what we're looking for, though, is something that really does excite us. We're looking for the very greatness of what we enjoy about this place, but redeemed, transfigured, and made way beyond anything we can imagine. That which you love most about the earth will be the, will be the lowest representation of what's coming in the new earth. That what's coming in the future is not just non-bodily, it's not just a heavenly kind of thing, but it's a new city coming down from heaven, and heaven is coming on earth. That what we're waiting for is Jesus Christ returning, setting up a kingdom on earth, and that we will reign and we will rule with him, and we'll experience all that we were intended to be on a new earth coming down from heaven, right? That's what we're looking for. It's not non-bodily. It's not completely discontinuous from what we're experiencing now. It's very much a fulfillment of the very best that we experience now, the very best that we're hoping for, the very best that we're working towards. I think for many, as they think about the future that's to come, they think it's so different from the present. They recognize that, that right now what will happen before Jesus Christ returns is that our world will get worse and worse. And so many just disengage. They say, hey, if I can't change the world, if I can't fix this until Jesus Christ returns, why bother? And in the midst of the kinds of extremes that we are to avoid, that is yet another. Sometimes the church and Christians can be so heavenly minded, we can be so fixed on the hope that's to come, that we completely disengage in the present. Which is why I think this comes last in the verse, because the very lead foot is engage actively. As you engage, remember to engage with an element of sobriety, but also with a, a hope that's fixed. See, a hope that's fixed on the future is not something that we maintain while we fail to engage in the present. It's something that we maintain and we hold on to as we engage because today is hard. Today we don't see all the change that we're hoping for. Today we don't see all, we don't see God doing all that we know that he can do and that he will do in the future. And so as we engage, seeing limited change, sometimes in ways beyond anything we could have imagined, but sometimes in ways that are so lower than what we imagined. And it seems like our timetable is not his when it seems like he's doing things at a different pace or in a different way. Or it seems like our prayers are unfulfilled. That as we continue to serve, as we continue to look for change, as we continue to try to impact our culture, we do that with an attitude that's fixed on a future that's coming when Jesus Christ will return. And he fulfill all that we ever hoped for, all that we ever imagined, because it is that day that we're looking for. And what we begin to do in the present is provide but a brief preview and a trailer for ourselves and for the nations at large as to what's coming in the future. That as we engage in our own world, we begin to see righteousness revealed. We begin to see injustice pulled back. We begin to see the reign of Jesus Christ established in brief, sometimes invisible, sometimes in incredibly small ways. Some will see the world as, in a sense, the Titanic that's going down. So some will say, why bother polishing the doorknobs? If this world order is going to be purified and judged and God will recreate, then why bother trying to fix and trying to bring about restoration, even if it's limited in the present? And again, that's why I think Peter will say that this element, this hope that is fixed on the future is a hope that's fixed on the future as we engage in the present. 
not as we look toward the future, right? Let me pray for us. And then we're going to end up in a little bit of worship this morning. Father God, I thank you immensely for what you've done on our behalf. I thank you that you are righteous, that you are holy. I thank you that you have commissioned us to be change agents in our world. Lord, I pray and I ask, Lord, that you would allow us to engage with incredible sense of faith, incredible sense of hope that you can do much. That you can do more than we could even think or imagine, even in our present context, in our present world, where so much seems stacked against us and against you. And Father, I pray that you'd allow us to see you do things in our midst of our generation, in the midst of our culture, in the midst of our cities, in the midst of our campus that would completely establish the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That we could see but a bubble, but a preview of what's coming in the future. Lord, help us to wait on that day. Help us not to confuse present change, present hope for a future hope that's coming that's way fuller, way more magnificent, way more glorious than anything we can imagine. Lord, help us to engage, trusting you to do whatever it is that you will see fit in your timing and in your way.